Once again, we have the great privilege of looking into the Word of God and having the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. And I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 16 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful historical account of the early church. Acts 16. And while you're turning there, may I remind you that we are once again joining the Apostle Paul and his three companions on their missionary journey into Macedonia where God has called them. And I invite you to once again enter into these actual historical events that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. And we do not do this merely for the purpose of entertainment. In fact, not for entertainment at all, but for the purpose of edification as well as exaltation. Otherwise, this is just another story. But remember that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. All Scripture is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be adequate and equipped for every good work. We are told in the Bible that we are to receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. We are to receive it with meekness. We are to receive it with joy. We're not to merely hear it, listen to it, but we are to obey it. In fact, in Scripture, we learn that we are to search it. We are to hide it in our heart. We are to treasure it. We are commanded to meditate upon it. We are commanded to teach it to our children. We are commanded to talk about it continually, to rightly divide it, to never handle it deceitfully. We're even taught to use it against our spiritual enemies. We're even told to desire it in our heart and, and esteem it above all else, to pray to be conformed to it and to plead the promises of the word of God in our prayers. Indeed, the Apostle Paul said that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom. So we do that again this morning as we come to this text before us. Now, remember the context, this team of four of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke have come to Philippi. God has led them to a riverside worship service and prayer meeting of a handful of women. And there was a businesswoman that was there from across the Aegean Sea over in Asia Minor in a town called Thyatira. Her name was Lydia. She was a seller of the valuable purple and royal blue materials and cloths. And God had prepared her heart to hear the gospel, which she did. And by God's grace, she embraced the gospel and repented faith and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and bowed before him as Lord. And then Luke tells us in verse 16 that they continued their ministry in Philippi. And while doing so, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed 
and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. And so you will recall here that Paul finally got fed up with this demonic gadfly that was constantly interrupting and irritating him and the message being proclaimed and making a mockery of the glorious gospel of Christ. And so he swatted that fly once and for all and commanded the demon to come out of her. And that leads us now to our text this morning, beginning in verse 19. Let me read it to you. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep, and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house, And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? (laughs) No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. I am fascinated with four 
realities that emerge from this text, each of which are not only categories of truth that are filled with practical application to our lives as believers, but also realities that really speak to the issues of our world, of our culture some 2,000 years later as if nothing has changed. We're going to see, first of all, the rage of anti-Semitism. Secondly, the rejoicing of the prisoners. Thirdly, the rescue of the jailer. And finally, the recant of the magistrates. Notice, first of all, the rage of anti-Semitism that emerges from the text. In verses 19 through 21, we see that these masters now, they're, they're upset. Their hope of profit is gone. So they, they seize Paul and they seize Silas and drag them before the authorities out in public. And they cry out to the magistrates, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. And here we see both the idolatry of materialism that produces greed and slavery, as well as the perennial hatred of the gospel of Christ and his covenant people, the Jew. You must understand, dear friends, that these pimps of divination were furious, first of all, because, as the text says, their hope of profit was gone. You see, the demon that gave insight to the fortune teller had been exercised. She no longer had these abilities. And so now this slave girl was both powerless as well as worthless, probably cast aside and discarded like an old prostitute. And like all greedy materialists, these fiendish masters had no concern for the personal welfare nor the spiritual welfare of this person, this woman. No concern also that their wealth was derived from a wicked enterprise that honored Satan and dishonored God. And so they seized Paul and Silas, it says, and dragged, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities and bring them before the chief magistrates. And then again, notice how they cleverly appeal to an already existing prejudice in order to guarantee a favorable verdict. At the end of verse 20, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Beloved, here again, we witness the rage of anti-Semitism. That inveterate, unceasing sport of all cultures. And the unextinguished embers of hatred towards the Jews had been fanned into full flame during this particular era of history because it was around this time in about 49 AD that the Emperor Claudius of Rome had made a decree that all of the Jews in Rome needed to be expelled. And by the way, later on, we will learn in Acts 18 that it was for this reason that Priscilla and Aquila had to flee from Rome. I want to digress for a moment and help you understand this issue of anti-Semitism that we see emerging even here in this text. It's fascinating to me that even to this day there is such hatred towards Jews. And there is a reason for that, as you will soon understand. 
Today, there's about 5.5 million Jews in a little place called Israel. And they are surrounded by 360 million hostile Muslims that are absolutely committed to to their eradication. Today, there are only 15 million Jews in all of the world. There's more people that live in the state of Florida than there are Jews in the world. And yet there are 1.3 billion Muslims. And yet, to hear the Muslims tell it, the Jews are taking over the world. And that's what they teach their children. And that's what many people unfortunately believe, many even in our country. If you look at the Arab world today, if you go into any of their classrooms or any of their homes, you look at any of their atlases, you will not see the state of Israel on any of their maps because in their mind it does not exist. That is the territory of Allah. The Jews have been repeatedly attacked even in their little land and yet every time they're attacked they do something that no other nation does. They give back land to those who attack them. Even land that they have won in self-defense. The world considers Zionism as racism. And yet, the state of Israel is the only democratic country in that region. Since 1976, the United Nations have made 65 resolutions condemning Israel as being a racist, oppressive regime. And yet, Arabs, people of other faiths, Muslims are all allowed to vote within that democracy and there's no other democracy anywhere in the region. And there's not been one resolution against any of the Muslim nations. Now, how do you explain that? Saudi Arabia won't even allow a Jew to set foot in it. Israel is a little place about the size of New Jersey. It has about 9,000 square miles and it constantly is dwindling as they give land for peace. And of course, their enemies don't want peace. They want the Jews completely eradicated. Versus 22 Arab countries that have 5 million square miles. And yet, Israel cannot have its own little nation. And I could go on and on. The point is, there is an amazing bias and hatred against the Jews. How do you explain that? We see that emerging even here in this text. Let me give you a little background. From the very beginning, Satan has been jealous of God and hated God and has done everything he could to incite unimaginable persecution against God's covenant people, all in an attempt to thwart the purposes of God. And it all stems back to two covenants that God gave to Abraham. One that later came through Abraham to his son Isaac and another to Ishmael. The promise to Isaac was that of a perpetual ownership of the land of Israel. We read that in Genesis 17, 19. A land for his heirs, the Jewish people. But there was another covenant given to his other son Ishmael. A promise of them becoming a great nation, as we read in Genesis 21:18, with descendants that shall not be counted for multitude, Genesis 16:10. 
And indeed, today, the Arab people cover a huge portion of the globe. But there were some significant differences in those covenants that you would do well to understand. Not only was Isaac and his Jewish descendants promised a specific territory, but there were two other very important blessings rooted in the original covenant given in, given to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 or 12, 3, we read, and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And by the way, historically, we can see that every country who has in any way cursed Israel, turned their back on Israel, has suffered unbelievable defeat in many ways. You see that, for example, with Saddam Hussein, who was attempting to destroy Israel. He was going to gas them. He made that promise as he gassed many of the Kurds and poisoned them. He called himself the new Nebuchadnezzar. And it wasn't long until the United States military pulled him out of a hole and he was hung. You see the same types of, of defeat suffered at, in Great Britain. You see it happening right now in Great Britain and in France. They will all soon become Muslim nations. You see it in Germany. You see the results of it in Russia. And I fear that someday you will see it in the United States. But God gave... Another promise originally to Abraham through Isaac. And this was a promise not just for the blessing on those who bless you and the cursing on those who don't. But in the context of God staying the hand of Abraham. Preventing him from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18. He also said this. And in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And in Galatians 3.16, Paul helps clarify that, that that seed was a reference to the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rooted in the covenants to Abraham and his son Isaac was that I am going to bless you and bless your people and curse anybody that does anything to you. And likewise, all of the nations are going to be blessed through a seed that will come through you, namely the Lord Jesus. So God's promise to Abraham through his seed, Isaac, not Ishmael, was simply this. There's going to be a coming king, according to Genesis 17:6. There is going to be a land for the king, which was an everlasting possession in Genesis 17:8. And there's going to be a people of the king when God said in Genesis 17:8, and I will be their God. And, of course, this promise of a special blessing and protection for the king's chosen people there in Genesis 12, 3. And all of this resulted in Ishmael and his Arab descendants having enormous animosity toward Isaac and his Jewish descendants. And as we read the Old Testament, later we see that that rift between the two became even greater when the blessing fell to Jacob and his posterity, rather to Esau and his posterity. And all through the Old Testament, Ishmael's descendants have had a seething hatred for the Jew and an utter determination to eradicate them completely. In fact, the psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 83, 4, when he said, come and let us Cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. The psalmist says, for they have consulted together with one consent. And it sounds like the dictator of Iran, does it not? 
We continue to hear the same thing. But this should be no surprise because God promised Abraham that his son Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, would be, according to Genesis 16:12, a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And certainly this is the legacy of the Arab people. And eventually in the seventh century, Satan gave the Arabs and the descendants, therefore, of Ishmael and Esau a new and unifying religion. It was called Islam, along with a book called the Koran and even a new center of worship. Rather than Jerusalem, it would be Mecca. And they were given a new God called Allah, created by the demonically inspired Muhammad. And this became a religious system that would allow the Arab hatred to coalesce around something that they perceived to be sacred. Thus, the word jihad or holy war has become the battle cry of the Muslim. And yet to this day, dear friends, despite being the most hated and persecuted people in the history of the earth, the Jews have returned to their land, which is a miracle in and of itself, to continue to, frankly, dominate the world in virtually every category of science and music and literature and the economy and even in military prowess. They say right now, next to the United States, Israel has the most powerful air force in the world. And as a footnote, dear friends, I hope you understand in light of all this, the conflict in the Middle East will never be resolved politically, despite the Jimmy Carters of the world. It will never be resolved politically because it is not a political problem. It is a religious problem. And only those who are historically and biblically illiterate illiterate could possibly miss this. What we are seeing is nothing more than the ongoing battle of the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light. Dear friends, there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace brings peace when he comes again and establishes it. And although Israel and the Jew have been temporarily displaced by the church as the custodians of truth, as the witness people and scattered among the nations by God himself, The Jew continue to be God's chosen people, his beloved enemy, and he has promised that someday he will restore them unto himself. As we read in many passages, for example, in Ezekiel 36, 22, the prophet speaks the word of God and God says that I'm going to restore them for my holy name's sake. And in verse 23, he says, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now, dear friends, all of this to say that anti-Semitism has been around since God made his covenant with Abraham. Sadly, we even find it in evangelicalism. It is fueled much by the grievous error of replacement theology that contends that that. The church has replaced Jewry as the true Israel of God and so on, despite enormous biblical support to the contrary. But historically, what you must understand is wherever the Jews have lived, they have been divinely blessed 
as well as satanically hated and persecuted. And we see that even here in first century Philippi. So, it was natural for these pimps of divination to appeal to these already existing prejudices, the satanically induced hatred of the Jews. Will you notice, interestingly enough, that out of the four, it was Paul and Silas that were arrested, not Luke and Timothy. There's good reason for that. Paul and Silas were Jews. Luke and Timothy were not. So, two Jews, Paul and Silas, are seized, dragged before the authorities. They're charged with two things. One, throwing our city into confusion, which was utterly ridiculous. And then secondly, for proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Now, this was true, but it was seldom enforced. Because the real agenda here was these guys were furious over their loss of income. Which tends to be the true motivation of most politicians. Well, next, the crowd gets involved. And you must remember that crowds are easily manipulated because crowds, mobs, are ruled by emotion. Rob Psychology tells us that in a crowd, an individual tends to abandon their individuality, their individualism and rational judgment, and they take on the identity of a group especially when they've been inspired by some charismatic leader or some prejudice, some pre-existing hatred or whatever. And political leaders down through history have used this to their advantage. You can just pick any one of them. You know, you look at Hitler and Stalin, you look at North Korea, Russia, Iran. Yeah, I mean, you see these leaders get up in front of these squares with thousands and thousands of people and all of the military that parades in front of them, and they know how to manipulate the people with their speeches. Even today, you see the crowds of, of, of Muslims in different areas, and they're always screaming and raising their banners in their hands and crying death to America and burning American flags and, and all of this type of thing. This is the kind of the mob mentality that was occurring even here. It's interesting, Carl Sandburg, the poet, put it this way, quote, I am the mob, the crowd, the mass, do you know that all the great work of the world is done through me? End quote. How true it is. Some have rightly said that being in a group allows individuals to defer blame and responsibility and accountability and or judgment upon the group rather than themselves. So this is the dynamic that you have here. And the magistrates come along. They rip off the robes of Paul and Silas. They strip them down. They take them to the public square and they beat them with rods, which was nothing more than Roman scourges done by the Philippian police. Now, fascinating observation here. Will you notice that neither Paul nor Silas indicate at this point that they are Roman citizens? They don't do that until after their beating and their imprisonment. I find that interesting. Why did they remain silent? I believe there's two primary reasons. One is they did not want to give any impression that they were unwilling or afraid to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, I believe it was because of their intense love for the new believers there in Philippi, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And you say, well, how so? Well, simply because they knew that eventually it would come out. They knew that 
because the magistrates would eventually learn of their unlawful treatment of the Jews, this, this would cause them to greatly fear that the word would get back to the emperor and they could be in serious trouble. So when Paul and Silas allowed themselves to be treated unlawfully, they not only created a situation for the magistrates to eat humble pie a little bit later, but it would also loudly warn against any further mistreatment of those Christians there in Philippi, both Jew and Gentile. So, filled with animosity towards their Jewishness, not to mention despising the gospel of Christ, they scourge them and they throw them into a dungeon. Verse 24, a place called the inner prison. Dear friends, this was maximum security. Notice what it says. They fastened their feet in the stocks. Now you must understand, beloved, that the Roman stocks were instrument of torture. Roman stocks were adjustable wooden frames with various holes in them designed to stretch the legs apart to create maximum pain. It was not something necessarily to keep prisoners from escaping. In fact, the ancient historian Eusebius describes the torment of imprisonment by Christian martyrs who were placed in this instrument of torture as having their feet stretched in stocks separated to the fifth hole. So this is the predicament now that Paul and Silas are in. So first we see the rage of anti-Semitism, this diabolical hatred where Satan foments Hatred against the Jew as well as Christian alike. And secondly, now we see another fascinating category of truth, and that is the rejoicing of the prisoners. Imagine, dear friends, if you have been publicly beaten, you have been whipped by a Roman scourge where they would typically tie you up and stretch you over something and beat you with little leather whips with various items on them. Imagine now that your back has been laid open as well as around your rib cage where the lashes would reach around. You are bleeding, you are bloody, you are bruised. Every breath you take triggers further pain. And then suddenly you're taken and you're thrown into a cold, dark, Damp dungeon with a horrific odor because typically this was, in essence, the septic tank of the prison, a place where it would often be covered with human excrement and urine. And then your legs are stretched apart where you feel like the pulley bone of a chicken when two people are pulling them, as we have all done. And now you are required to lay flat on your back on that cold, filthy floor with your back bleeding. What do you do? There's no lawyer you can call. There's no court to which you can appeal except the highest court of all. The one that will ultimately bring Relief and redemption in his time. So what do you do? You pray. And you sing hymns of praise to God. 
Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Folks, this indicates now that they've been there a long time in this extreme pain. Obviously, they can't sleep. How can anybody sleep with that? So what do you do when you can't sleep? You pray and you sing. You pray and you sing. And you also try to be a testimony to the others. It says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine what these prisoners must be thinking? What type of planet did these guys come from? They, they, they have been beaten. They're in agony in stocks. They're laying here in this filth and they're praying to God. And they're singing hymns of praise. We hear them praying for their enemies that have done this. We hear them praying for us. We hear them praying to a God of grace and mercy. We hear this incredible hope of heaven. My, what an impact that must have had on those prisoners. Later, Paul would write in Philippians 4, and he would say, Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That term forbearing spirit means to patiently submit to injustice. And to maltreatment without any malice. This was what was going on even there in that dungeon. He went on to say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Can't you imagine Paul living this out in that dungeon, lying there saying, oh, Lord, we trust you. We rejoice in what you're doing, even with us now, knowing that ultimately you will glorify yourself through this, even though we don't understand why. Lord, we thank you that we know that even your saving purposes are often concealed in calamity. Lord, we pray for the saints in Philippi who are now so discouraged and so afraid themselves. Lord, we pray for these other prisoners who are around us. We pray that they might see the glory of Christ. And that by His grace, they might be saved. And that's why Paul would later on say in Philippians 4, when you do these things, when you're anxious for nothing, when you're rejoicing always, he says that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And indeed, dear friends, this was a supernatural peace that guarded the heart and the mind of Paul and Silas. Well, you must understand that the jailer had to, be, had to have heard all of this as well. I mean, this is unprecedented. Oh, child of God, I just marvel at divine providence here. To think how that God has orchestrated all of these events, even with the fortune teller and the imprisonment. He's orchestrated all of this so that these prisoners... And this jailer and ultimately his household could hear the message of mercy. Isn't that amazing? Paul was practicing what he knew to be true. God is in control. He's up to something. My life is expendable. And I can just hear what he would say later on in Romans 8, 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And later, even in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he said, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Beloved, is this your attitude when 
you find yourself in some dungeon of physical pain. Or you find yourself in some crucible of spiritual suffering where you're suffering for the cause of Christ. I hope it is. And by God's grace, it can be and it will be for all those who are truly united to him in faith. I never cease to marvel at the sufficiency of God's grace. And when I think about this scene, I I just am absolutely amazed at the grace of God working in the hearts of these dear brothers. I'm reminded of what Paul said again in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, knowing that he will never tempt us beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that we may be able to endure it. Beloved, I hope this is your song in the night. Now notice the miracle of God's deliverance in verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. What an amazing scene that would have been. Suddenly all the prisoners were freed from their shackles and Paul and Silas were instantly freed from the torturous rack. And now everyone is standing. Now, the text doesn't say that. But I would imagine that to be true. I've been in several large earthquakes, two of them in California and in several small ones. And believe me, every time I've been around one, everybody's standing. No one looks for a place to sit or lie down. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. They're looking to run somewhere, but you don't know where to go. One that I was in several years back in Los Angeles, I was in the terminal there in Los Angeles airport The earthquake came and the glass started to break all around us in the terminal. And I watched this big 747 flop like a bird jumping away from the ramp. People were screaming. They were running, didn't know where to go. And finally, it kind of calmed down. And then the aftershocks came and it all began again. Well, this was certainly something similar to what they would have experienced. And here again, we see the answer to Paul and Silas's supplications power of their prayers, and the omnipotence of the God that they worshiped and that we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this leads us to the third reality, and that is the rescue of the jailer. Now, friends, you must understand a bit about jailers of those days. They were typically old, hardened soldiers, old legionnaires. They made good jail keepers. They were typically cruel and heartless men, and often they would have their house and their servants attached kind of to the jail, to the prison itself. And I find it interesting, this would have been the last kind of person that Paul and Silas would have chosen probably to go witness to. But how often are these the ones whom God chooses? Even over the moral and the religious who are so convinced of their righteousness that they have no need for salvation. How often God brings us into contact with the most unlikely prospects. Isn't that interesting? I think of Matthew 21, 32. Remember where Jesus was condemning the religious elite for their unbelief because they refused to believe the message of John the Baptist. And he said, but the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. Indeed, I believe it is much easier to witness to the down and out than the up and out. 
The Lord said in Mark 10, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You can't buy salvation. You can't earn it. It's all of grace. Now, notice what happens in verse 27 with the jailer. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. In other words, he wanted to avoid a torturous execution, having failed in his duty as a Roman soldier. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. My goodness, what an example of loving your enemy, showing mercy to the merciless. Now, no doubt the jailer is absolutely stunned beyond words. He doesn't know what's happening all of a sudden. Verse 29, and he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Again, it tells us here that if he fell down before them, they were standing, right? Paul and Silas are standing. What an amazing thing. But dear friends, I believe the jailer's heart had already been softened by the hymns and by the prayers and and the testimony of others. Never had he seen such 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 prisoners. Never had he heard such stories. And now (laughs) this earthquake, then the prisoners are freed, yet they're remaining in jail. One of the prisoners calls out to save his life. Well, I'd call for the lights too. bring the lights, guys. What is going on here? And there's Paul and Silas standing free along with all of the rest of the prisoners. Isn't it interesting that that they they didn't seem to run? Probably an indication that they were they were more fascinated with what God was up to than their own freedom. There's Paul and Silas. I'm, I'm sure standing there with a smile on their face and no doubt tears running down their cheeks. And it says that he fell down before Paul and Silas. He fell down before them. This man was absolutely humbled to the core. This was probably a combination of false worship, certainly fear, gratitude. And I'm sure there was more conversation than in verse 30. It says, after he brought them out. In other words, let's get out of this stinking hole. We've got to talk, sirs. I've got to ask you something. What must I do to be saved? Isn't it interesting here that no longer was he afraid to live? Now he's afraid to die. What a change of events. Beloved, again, a man will never cry out to be saved unless he first realizes that he's lost. Now he understands that he's lost. By God's grace, he recognizes his sin. He recognizes, obviously, his utter inability to save himself. So, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer brings him out of the dungeon. He's probably standing outside in the courtyard. I'm sure there are other people from the area coming around. You know, that's what happens whenever an earthquake has occurred. Everybody's outside. They don't want to be inside for fear that something's going to fall on them. The soldiers are around. The family, the servants, they're all standing around. They're all flabbergasted with what has just transpired. And here's these filthy, bloody, bruised missionaries. These Jews that everybody has thrown in the prison. And I'm sure Luke and Timothy were there with them. And you have this 
blubbering jailer crying out to be saved. What an incredible scene. His wife, his family, no doubt. It says his household, perhaps his servants. He's trembling in fear and conviction. He's desperate to be reconciled to a holy God. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said in verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Obviously, this was an invitation that was given to all who were there. Oh, beloved, what a precious phrase. What liberating truth. What a message of mercy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. In verse 32, it says they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And I'm sure his house was absolutely filled with people by this time. What does it mean? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, the term believe really means to rely on or to trust. It's kind of at the essence of this issue of faith. You hear all this talk about people of faith. The sad thing is they do not believe, they do not trust, they do not rely on the right object of faith. There is only one, and that is the Lord Jesus. And so, Paul and Silas say to him in the household, You've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what this, this means is that this hardened old jailer and his household suddenly understood, first of all, that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that. He believed, finally, that it was only through the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ that he could be saved. He understood that his sacrificial death was one that had to occur in his stead. And that only his death could remove the guilt and the punishment of his sin. He believed that only by the transforming power of the Spirit of God could he be regenerated. Could he be transformed? Could he be made a new creature in Christ? He believed that only by the power of the Lord Jesus could he be released from the bondage of sin. And delivered from the kingdom of darkness. He believed that only God could give him a totally new disposition, that only God could transform his character so that he could somehow be like these men that he had observed. This is what it means to believe. I think perhaps belief in this issue of faith can be well illustrated by an example that I heard once upon a time. It's that of a young child in a burning apartment house. Imagine the young child is desperately trying to flee from the flames and the smoke that are now coming down the hall and lapping into the room under the door. The door is beginning to burn. There seems to be no way of escape. So the child runs to an open window, gasping for breath, gasping for air. He looks down and he sees that it's far too high to jump, but also it's too hot to stay inside. And so in despair, he climbs out the window and he he grasps a hold of the sill of the window and he hangs on knowing nothing else to do. There's no other option. And suddenly he hears a man's voice below. And the man says, let go and fall into my strong arms, for I am able to catch you and to save you. 
And he sees the man's strength. He, he looks down under his arms and, and he believes that this man is indeed able to catch him. But his belief alone is to no avail unless he acts upon his belief. Indeed, belief alone will not save him, but it prepares him for the action that will. Now he must trust the strong man. He must drop down into the strength of his arms. Likewise, when a man recognizes the desperateness of his spiritual condition, when a man recognizes that he is unable to save himself, merely believing the facts about Jesus as the Savior will not save him. He must act upon what he knows to be true. He must give himself completely to Christ and trust in Him alone and drop safely down into His outstretched arms. Beloved, this is the marvelous gift of faith. So this hardened old jailer believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and he was saved in his household. As I thought about this, I reflected on the fact that occasionally some men are saved out of an ungodly family. And they are the solitary trophies of God's grace with no others in the family ever coming to Christ, ever being converted. But more often than not, dear friends, that is not the case. More often, many in that household will be saved. You might want to just think of your family. Think of those in your background and how often... We as Christians can rejoice knowing that once there was one, then another, then another that were snatched from the flames. And this reminds me, dear friends, that our priority must be our children. It must be our family. You will remember that Paul spoke how Timothy was trained by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. Isn't that interesting? It's so important. Again, if I can digress for a moment, never forget, beloved, that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to bring our family to church, bring our children to church, that they might fall under the weight of the gospel. We must constantly expose them to the word of Christ at home. Well, this jailer and his household all trusted in Christ as Savior in verse 33 it says, and he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And again, no doubt the crowd had gathered here they, with the earthquake and all this commotion. Well, it's the perfect time to publicly declare, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We, we, we identify with the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were baptized, and then it says, verse 34, he brought them into his house, set food before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Oh, dear friends, what a, what a grand celebration of grace that must have been that night. Now, probably in the wee hours of the morning, a beautiful picture of that future day when all the saints will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb that's described in Revelation 19. That glorious time when the bride of Christ, the church, invites all of those who have been saved by grace before Pentecost, along with the tribulation saints, to celebrate the grace of the one who gave himself for us. So we've seen the rage of anti-Semitism, the rejoicing of the prisoners and the rescue of the jailer. Finally, 
the recant of the magistrates. Isn't this interesting? In verse 35, when they came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release the men. Release those men. And the, just, and, the, and the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. <laughs> but Paul said, in essence, no, 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 no. They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come out themselves and bring us out. In other words, we are Roman citizens Show us a little respect. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. See, again, Paul and Silas had allowed themselves to be treated unlawfully and illegally, knowing that ultimately this would protect the fledgling Philippian church in that the magistrates would become frightened over their illegal activity, raising the probability that they would not similarly abuse other saints there in Philippi. And of course, this was a real dilemma for the magistrates because on the one hand, the the crowds and the pimps of divination, as I call it, were after them to get rid of these clowns. And so they were receiving pressure from the constituency on the one hand, but also they knew on the other that they had no legal basis To force them to leave. So what do politicians do when all else fails? They beg. And that's what we have going on here. And having accomplished much, Paul and the three, his three companions graciously departed. But only after one final visit with Lydia and the other believers, verse 40, they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Isn't it interesting? They encouraged them. You guys who are still bruised and bloody, you're encouraging us. My, what a wonderful testimony. Well, I challenge you, dear friends. What an incredible demonstration we see here today of God's power to deliver saints and save sinners. And may I challenge you to trust Christ as your Savior in such a way that you have a renewed commitment to serve Him with the same kind of zeal that you see Paul and Silas. And to even rejoice in adversity, knowing that God is up to something. Again, that His saving purposes are always concealed in calamity. Dear friend, I pray for those of you who cannot see the flames. Those of you who have no sense of impending judgment, Those of you who do not see your sin, have no conviction of it, I pray that the Spirit of God will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And that you will, by His grace, drop into the arms of Jesus, who alone can save you to the uttermost. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for these incredible truths that bring such spiritual nourishment to our hearts. I pray that they will produce much fruit in us. And I pray likewise that it will cause those who know nothing of the saving power and grace of Christ to bow the knee before you this day, to confess their sins, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray this for your sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.